we do come to you in Jesus' name, and we're, we come, Lord, um, with grateful hearts. I'm so thankful, Lord, for each and every woman who made the effort to be here tonight, Lord, and I ask your blessing upon her. For those, Lord, who couldn't be here, we ask that you would be with them also, Father, and those who later might hear this study. But we know, Father, that, um, that your word never comes back void. And so I ask, God, that as your word goes out this evening, it would settle into each of our hearts and meet us where we're at, Lord, in those, those different areas, those different situations that we find ourselves in this evening, God. I ask that you would just bless your word and, and build on the discussions that have already happened in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the 13 colonies, they were prepared to fight Great Britain in, in the American Revolution, there were a lot of slogans and banners that started uh, to pop up all over the place. And some of them are familiar to us even today, right? Things like, such as, no taxation without representation. The whole idea of the one, don't tread on me. We've seen that one. Patrick Henry with his give me liberty or give me death. But there are a lot of other slogans that, that came up and they may not be as well known. And here's a short story behind one of them. And it, it took place on the night of April 18th in 1775. And so John Adams, John Hancock, they're both at the home of the Reverend Jonas Clark, and he was um, a pastor in the, city, the little city of Lexington, and he was also a militia leader. And so that same night, these men were gathered, and that night, Paul Revere came through there to warn them that the Redcoats, you know, the British Army was approaching. And so what happened the next morning is that the British Major um, Pitcairn, he, you know, he met up with this militia group, right? So the militia group, and they kind of face off there against the British. And this British major yells out to them, to this regiment of militiamen, he says, Disperse ye villains, lay down your arms in the name of George, the sovereign king of England. And there was a response. And, and they made debate about who exactly said it, whether it was John Adams, John Hancock, this pastor, or one of the other people in that group. But the response that came was, We recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. You know, pretty neat. And, you know, you'll go out there and you'll look at, look, um, look this up and you'll see people who try to cast doubt on the, the truth of this story. And you follow the links and a lot of them lead to these atheist websites and stuff. But, but for us as believers, this, the truth of this statement, I mean, it rings true regardless of who actually said it. Because as a Christian, we recognize that the only God is our God. And he is sovereign over everything. Our God is sovereign over everything. And Jesus Christ, he is the only king. And that word sovereign, it can be used as both a noun and as an adjective. As a noun, it means a supreme ruler, right? Like the sovereign king or something like that. But um, usually like a monarch. But it can also be an adjective. Now, when we're using it in our book, we talk about, um, we're talking about the characteristics of God, the attributes of God. So these are all adjectives. So we say God is sovereign. And the actual word sovereign, it's, it um, has different roots. It builds from the English word reign along with a Latin word super which means over so it's the whole idea of reigning over something okay so we have that when you're sovereign you're over something else and in our study like i said none like you were looking at describing god so that's why we use the word sovereign in our lesson but i'm also going to use the word sovereignty tonight and sovereignty is a noun and it just means a supreme power or authority so we talk about the sovereignty of god god's supreme power or we can make it an adjective and say god is sovereign so either way we're talking about the same idea here and I don't know about you ladies, but I'm really, really loving our study this year about the attributes of God. You know, it's, I know sometimes the homework has been a little bit challenging because there's just a lot of verses you need to look up. Also, you have to, a lot of information to deal with. But I really think that Karen and Trudy have done an outstanding job in taking all these different attributes of God 
and, and kind of framing them in a very, very approachable way because they're huge. They're so broad. They're so huge. You know, there's this old proverb or, or old riddle that says, how do you eat an elephant? Have you ever heard that one? How do you eat an elephant, right? And how do you, in other words, how do you tackle this huge, enormous task? And how do you do it? One bite at a time. That's how you do it, right? And so how do we study God's sovereignty? <laughs> one bite at a time. But the only thing is that we only have like 43 minutes left. So we have to chew fast. We have to chew fast. <laughs> but that's the idea. It's just a big topic. We're going to kind of pare it down here. And so there's three different things we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at what is sovereignty. We're going to talk about what it looks like. What does sovereignty look like? And I'll explain what I mean when I get to that. And then why is God's sovereignty important? In other words, how should it affect us as a believer? So what is his sovereignty? What does sovereignty look like? And why is it important to us as believers? And my goal this evening is that when you walk away, it's not just knowing what God's sovereignty is, but also how we can take that knowledge, right? How we can make it a part of our daily Christian life. Because I know for me, sometimes it's, it's a matter of getting that, that truth that I learned from my head down into my heart. And that's what we need it. We need to get God's truth into our hearts so that we can grow closer to him. So that's what we're going to seek to do tonight. So first of all, looking at what is sovereignty. And as I mentioned, sovereignty is having supreme power and authority. That's what it means. Sovereignty is having supreme power and authority. So we say God is sovereign. That is, God has complete power. He has complete authority over everything. So looking at these two things, power. We know that the scripture tells us in Psalm 62, 11, it says, God has spoken once. Twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. So we talk about that sovereignty is having that power and power belongs to God. It goes back to our study. We looked at his omnipotence. We looked at God's power already. The whole idea of authority, because sovereignty is having power and authority. You think, okay, authority, does God have authority? Now I was thinking about it. Well, can you imagine God asking permission, right? So does God have authority? Yes, he has authority. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, but our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. He has the authority to do whatever he pleases. Psalm 135 verses 5 and 6 take up the same idea. And they say, for I know that the Lord is great and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. So his sovereignty involves all authority and all power. And if you think about it, authority without power can't do anything. I mean, think about the United Nations. Authority, no power. They can go into a country and say, okay, stop fighting like, to these two factions, but they don't have the, the you know, power to do anything about it. So authority without power is useless. And power without authority is just as useless. I mean, think about Samson. He had all this power, but he really didn't have any authority. So in order for God to be sovereign, you, he needs to have all power and all authority, these things together. He's supreme over everything. No one is above him, but he's the absolute Lord over creation. And his lordship, it means that there's nothing out of his control. There's nothing that God has not foreseen. There's nothing that God has not planned. It also means that ultimately every creature, every creature on earth, in heaven, in hell, must one day bow, right? Bow its knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that day. Because you look around you and you see people who just... Um, thumb their nose at God and just how the world is just so ignorant of him or just really, you know, brushes him aside. And it, it breaks your heart to think that one day they're going to have to bow, but I just can't wait until they do and they finally recognize him. You know, that's that, and that day will come, ladies. 
So his sovereignty. And hopefully, as we've been going through our studies here, you've noticed that there's a lot of, there's a connection, there's a very intimate connection between these different attributes of God. There's a lot of overlap. In fact, for us as teachers, sometimes it's hard because talking about one, you end up talking about another one because there's just like all of these connections. And that's very true of God's sovereignty here because his sovereignty doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? But it, it works together with a lot of his other attributes. One of them is his omniscience. One of the other attributes that's really connected to his sovereignty is his omniscience. So knowing everything, including how free creatures are going to choose, because that's what omniscience is. He knows everything. So knowing even how we're going to use our free will, this allows God to determine in advance how everything's going to turn out. And this advanced certainty gives him complete control of the results. So in order for God to be sovereign, he has to be omniscient. He has to know everything in order to have all that authority and all that power. In order to know what's going to happen, he has to know even how we're going to use our free will. Omnipotence, God, the, being all-powerful, that's also tied in excuse me, to, to his sovereignty. Knowing what will happen isn't enough. Because to be a sovereign God, he needs all power, like we said, in order to make these things come to pass. And so a God who's all-knowing and all-powerful can be in sovereign control of everything. God as our creator... That attribute of him as our creator, that's also exercising his sovereignty because he exercises his sovereignty over his creation, his supreme control over his creation. And we read about that in our homework, how he parted the Red Sea. We read about how the earth swallowed up Korah and those other ones who were rebellious, how the sun stood still, right? All of those things are, that's God exercising his sovereignty over his creation, but he also exercises his sovereignty, his absolute control and authority. He exercises it over people, such as King Nebuchadnezzar, right? So that king of Babylon. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. We read about that in the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel in chapter 4 and verses 34 and 35, at the very end, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes who God was. And he says, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's a great summary of God's sovereignty. What does his sovereignty mean? He does according to his will, and no one can say to him, hey, what are you doing? right? God is sovereign. God has that ultimate control. But what's kind of tricky is for us to think about his sovereignty and our free will. And that's a, that's kind of a difficult thing sometimes to wrestle with. And we have to understand that God's sovereignty, it does not override our free will. Now I liked what A.W. Tozer said. I'm going to read something that he wrote because I think he explained it really well. So follow with me here. And so Tozer writes and he says, God's sovereignty means absolute freedom, doesn't it? God is absolutely free to do anything he wants or wills to do, anywhere, anytime or forever. And man's free will means that man can make any choice he wants to make, even if he makes a choice against the will of God. Here's what I see. God Almighty is sovereign. He's free to do as he pleases. Among the things he pleased to do is to give me freedom to do as I please. And when I do as I please, I'm fulfilling the will of God. I'm not controverting it. For God, in his sovereignty, he has sovereignly given me freedom to make a free choice. Even if the choice I make is not the one that God would have me make, his sovereignty is fulfilled in my making a choice. 
And I can make the choice because the great sovereign God, who's completely free, he said to me, in my sovereign freedom, I bestow a little bit of freedom on you. Now, choose this day whom you will serve. Be good, be bad at your own pleasure. Follow me or don't follow me. Come on or go back. Go to heaven or go to hell. The sovereign God has put the decision in your lap. And he said, this is yours. You must make the choice. And when I make a choice, I'm fulfilling his sovereignty in that he sovereignly wills that I should be free to make a choice. So God in his sovereignty gives us the freedom to choose. So when we choose, we're fulfilling his sovereign will in that sense. So his sovereignty is his absolute power, his absolute authority over the universe. And his sovereignty works hand in hand with all of his other attributes, such as his omniscience and his omnipotence. And God has sovereignly decided to give us a free will. And so when we make decisions, we're truly free to make them because God has decided to give us this ability. So knowing now a little bit about what more about what it means when we say that God is sovereign, we're going to see what sovereignty looks like in real life. And so when I say, what does it look like? I mentioned earlier, I teach fifth grade and I've learned, I have to be very, very explicit when I explain things to my students, because it's really, really easy for me to assume that they know what I mean, or that surely their idea and my idea about this thing is the same. And I've come to realize in all my years of teaching that the brain of an 11 or a 10 year old doesn't always process things the way that I do. So I've just learned to be very, very clear. And so, for example, we talk with the kids about listening attentively. Okay, what does it mean to listen attentively? Okay, what does it look like? It means I have your eye contact. It means your hands are still. It's like, what does it look like when you're listening attentively, being very, very clear? And so I was thinking, okay, God is sovereign. What does that look like? What does that look like in your life and in my life? And so instead of talking about us, though, because that gets kind of weird, we're going to talk about Joseph because we can talk about him. So we have in the scripture Joseph's life. And you touched on that in your homework. And we're going to look, what does God's sovereignty look like by looking at Joseph's life? And in question five on that homework, it starts off by saying God is sovereign over the lives of men. And then it gives a little summary about Joseph's life. And many of you are probably familiar with the story, but I would really, really encourage all of you sometime in this next week, after we've talked about God's sovereignty, go back and reread the whole story, practically like from Genesis 37 on to the end there. And as after we've talked about sovereignty, and I really think you're going to see certain things in Joseph's life in a different light now that we've really, really um, dug into what this idea is. So what I want to do, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but there are five events from Joseph's life, Joseph's life I'm going to focus on. And those of you who like to take notes, don't focus so much on the events. I'll tell you what they are, but I'm going to keep repeating them and make connections. The point is I'm going to make connections about from these events to the sovereignty of God. But these are the five events I'm going to highlight that Joseph was sold as a slave by his brothers, that Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of rape, so he was sent to prison, that Joseph helped Pharaoh's cupbearer. Remember, he interpreted his dream, and then the guy forgot about him. That Joseph was called from prison to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and then Joseph was reunited with his brothers. Those are five key events in, in his life here. And what we're going to do is I, I sat back and looked at Joseph's life and I thought, okay, what does sovereignty look like? And the first thing I realized about sovereignty is that Joseph didn't know what God was doing or why he was doing it. In other words, sovereignty is messy, right? Joseph didn't know what was going on. He had no idea what God was doing at the moment, right? And somehow we think we need to be in control of everything that happens in our lives. or we need to understand it. But so often in order for God to be in control, I have to relinquish control. 
right? So, and that's, a, that's really hard. But for me to realize that God is in control, that means I'm not. And for, and for all of us, at some point, that's, that's a real hard thing. So Joseph didn't know what was going on when his brother sold him as a slave. I'm sure he wondered, God, why are you letting this happen? I mean, he's 17 years old when this happened. And he was probably wondering, what is going on here? God, why are you allowing this? Later, he was falsely accused of rape and he was sent to prison. And when he was defending himself or, or, or um, when Potiphar's wife was, was making those advances, he said to her, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he was standing for righteousness and he ends up getting thrown in prison. So it's kind of like, what did I do to deserve this, God? You know that Joseph at that point didn't understand what was going on. It made no sense to him. He interpreted the dream for Pharaoh's cupbearer. And then that dream came true. And then he told, you know, he told the cupbearer as he was going out, remember me. It's like, yeah, I'll put in a good word for you, whatever. And then he forgot about him. So he's forgotten there. He's sitting there for two years after this guy left. And his, his hopes and everything just crumbled there. And so again, just the idea, he didn't know what was happening. He had no idea what was going on. So how do, what is that for us? Like, what does that mean for us then? Well, we said God is sovereign. So God has absolute power. God has absolute authority. God's in complete control of everything. And Joseph didn't understand what he was doing. And that's part of God's sovereignty. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, the prophet writes, and God is speaking through him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God is telling the prophet, my ways aren't your ways. That's what's going on with Joseph. Joseph, you don't get what's going on because the way I do things, what I'm doing is different than what you're, you don't understand it. You can't see what's happening here. Now we have to be very, very careful, ladies. Because at the end, and you know the story, at the end, Joseph did understand, right? And we're going to get to that where he said, you know, at the very end, Joseph did put it all together. God revealed it. But you know what? God is not obligated to do that. Some things we are never, ever going to understand. And I think that's what's really, really hard. Joseph understood at the end. He could look back and say, oh, I get it, God. You did this because. And so it all fell into place for him. And for us, sometimes things fall into place, but sometimes they don't. You may never understand what God's sovereign plan was in with an illness or getting fired or the divorce, the breakup, the death of a loved one. We may not know what God's sovereign plan was in all of that. And he's not obligated, as I said, to let us know. Um, in the scriptures, many times it's kind of like God is the potter and we are the clay. That's kind of like the, the metaphor that's being used. And in the book of Isaiah, it's interesting because in Isaiah twenty nine sixteen, it's kind of, um, it says, surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Shall, for shall the thing made said of him who made it, he didn't make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Like you have things backwards. So is the potter, is God going to become as the clay? In other words, me as the clay, am I going to start questioning him? Is he going to be like, I'm going to like take his place. He's going to take the place of, the, of that lump of clay? No. So that's what happens sometimes when we start questioning what God's doing. And it's not that we can't question in that sense, Lord, I don't understand it, but we can't, um, how to say in Spanish, I said reclamo. We can't, you know, like say, you know, like, like against him, like what, ask him what he's doing, like in that, in that way, kind of like with, with anger or expecting him, like demanding an answer. We can't do that because he's God, he's God. And we may never understand what did Nebuchadnezzar say at the end of that verse in Daniel four thirty five. He said, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Right? So this is where our faith comes in. 
this is where our faith comes in. Like I said, Joseph, all the pieces neatly fell into place for him. It was not that it was easy, but it all fell together at the end. He got it. That may not happen with us. And what does it say in Hebrews 11.1? 1? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We don't always see what God is doing. We're not going to always understand it. Even at the end, we're not going to understand it. Okay, but that's where our faith comes in. And Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. So when God's sovereignty is at work in our lives, we don't always know what's going on. One day we might, but then we may never. So again, when I talk about what does sovereignty look like, it looks messy. (laughs) Okay, things happen and we don't get it. That's one thing. What else I saw in Joseph's life, another thing about what sovereignty looks like, is that what he was going through was very painful. What he was going through was very painful. Like I said, he was 17 years old. He was the favored son of Jacob. He was very privileged. And what happened? He was betrayed by his brothers. He was stripped of, his, of that robe that he had. He was sold as a slave into a foreign country. Now, we know that when his brothers went to Egypt trying to get food, Joseph recognized them at first, but they didn't know who he was. So they're over there talking Hebrew. He's over here as some Egyptian guy, and he's understanding them. Right. And what they said as they were talking amongst themselves, they said, um, we are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. I mean, these these stories, these are real people. This stuff really happened. I mean, imagine he comes up to go, you know, greet his brothers. They grab him. Right. Throw him in this pit, this cistern. Right. And he's like and he's pleading, begging for his life. And then these these people come and they sell him. And you could just almost hear his voice, I mean, you know, yelling to them until finally he fades away, like, because that, that caravan went far away. You know, I mean, it was very, very painful as God worked out his sovereignty in Joseph's life. It was very, very, very painful. And it was painful for his father, Jacob, also. He was the favorite son. I mean, when the brothers went back and told Jacob supposedly what had happened, right, I mean, Jacob just lost it. He was never the same. He was despondent. He was despondent at the loss of his son. So, so as God's work out of sovereignty, it was very, very painful. When Joseph was sold to Potiphar, who was one of the um, Pharaoh's officers there, right? He was there quite a long time, probably 10 or 11 years. So when the point came when he was falsely accused of attempting to rape Potiphar's wife, once again, he was taken from this place of privilege. He was overseeing this guy's house and all of his affairs. And he was taken and again, you know, thrown into, thrown into a prison. Again, a very, very painful thing. When he had interpreted the, the dream, as I said, of that cupbearer, and then that cupbearer, you know, left, and I'm sure Joseph waited day after day for, like, some word or something, you know, every time, like, the guard came, like, hey, you know, any news for me? <laughs> right? He's wondering. But finally, two years, he sat there. His hopes just faded little by little again. So, again, the application for us. When God's sovereign plan is at work in our lives, it can be painful. Right? It can be painful. Remember... God is sovereign and he gives us that free will. But a lot of times people use their free will to do bad things, right? That's what brings the pain. Now, some of you maybe have been betrayed, like Joseph was betrayed. Maybe it was a husband who was unfaithful. Maybe you had a close friend or a family member who betrayed a confidence that you had. But betrayal is very, very intensely painful. It's very, very painful. Now, how did Joseph deal with it? Well, eventually we know he forgave his brothers, but I could bet he probably didn't feel like it at first, right? But over time, as he saw God working out his sovereign plan, he was able to forgive them. Now, for us as Christians, we're instructed to forgive those who hurt us. And why? Because we're following the example of Christ. 
Because Christ, he was betrayed, right? He prayed when he was on the cross, Father, forgive them. I'm not saying in any way that it's easy, but it's part of being a believer and it's part of us submitting our lives to God's sovereignty. So God's sovereignty can be painful and when there's betrayal involved, we're asked to forgive those people. Or maybe it's not betrayal, but maybe you've been falsely accused, like Joseph. Maybe you've been falsely accused. Maybe it was a coworker, could be an acquaintance or even like, a, like someone who doesn't like you. Maybe they posted something on social media. And so now even your friends are starting to question. People are starting to wonder. Well, Jesus was also falsely accused, right? He was betrayed. He was falsely accused. And once again, he gives us an example of what it is that we need to do. In Mark chapter 15, in verses 4 and 5, that's um, when Jesus was brought before Pilate. And it says, Pilate asked him, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. I think one of the hardest things for us to do is to not defend ourselves. To not defend ourselves. Joseph was falsely accused, right? And Christ was falsely accused. He didn't defend himself, though. He didn't defend himself. He depended on God to do that. God used a verse in Psalm 710 in my life in a situation like that. And Psalms 710 says, my defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. So when you're being accused falsely of something, you don't have to defend yourself. It says, my defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God knows my motive. God knows why I did or said what I did. However they took it, they took it. But I don't need to defend myself. God will do that as long as we're upright and true in our dealings with him. So as difficult as it is, ladies, these are the kinds of situations we need to commit to him and let him defend us. So Joseph was betrayed. He was falsely accused. Maybe that hasn't happened to you, but maybe you've had your hopes and your expectations just dashed in pieces like Joseph did. Again, remember, I said that cupbearer, two years. So he just had all that hope that maybe this guy would help put a good word in for him and nothing happened. So maybe the house deal you were expecting to close on fell through. Or maybe that budding relationship that you were just so hoping was going to happen didn't happen. Or maybe it was that, that job or that promotion that slipped out of your grasp again. Right? Those disappointments that we face, those things happen. And they, what, did, what was the psalmist's response to that? In Psalm 42, 11, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So when our hopes... Our, our hopes are crumbling. Our hopes are fading. That's what he says. Why are we cast down? We need to have that hope in God. Psalm 146 verse 5 says, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Jeremiah 17 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. So we can have our hope. We can be disappointed. We can be betrayed. We can be falsely accused. Those things happen. They're very painful. It's all part of God's sovereignty sometimes working out in our life. But as he works that um, sovereignty out, you have to understand, God, that, um, ladies, that he is there for you in those painful moments. God is there for you in those painful moments. You have to remember just how precious you are to him, each and every one of you. And your tears do not go unnoticed. Your tears do not go unnoticed. In Psalm 30, verse 5, it says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And Psalm 56, 8 say, you num- number my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So when we have those, those painful times as God's sovereignty is working out in our life and there are these issues and stuff, just remember that you are not alone, that God is there with you and that you are very, very precious to him during that time. So sovereignty can be very messy. It doesn't make sense. It can be very painful. 
What else about it, right? <laughs> Sounds great. What else? <laughs> another thing I noticed is that it, it looked like evil was going to triumph. That's another thing about God's sovereignty. Sometimes it looks like the evil is going to win. Sometimes it looks like evil is going to win. Think about it. When Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave to Egypt, it looked like they triumphed. It looked like they won. Now, Joseph, um, before they, they got irritated with him and sold him, he had had a couple dreams. He had had two dreams. And those dreams seemed to show that one day he was going to be exalted above his brothers. And he was not the oldest. He was way down on the ranks there. And so one day he shared one of his dreams with his brothers in Genesis um, chapter 37. And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us or shall you have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So he shares this dream and it really bothered them. He had another dream. You would think, okay, that one didn't go over too well. He shared the second dream with them also. <laughs> and, it, and it says that his brothers envied him after that. So what happens? His dad, his dad sends him out to go check up on his brothers in Genesis chapter 37. And as he's coming, they start to talk among themselves. He said, look, this dreamer is coming. Therefore, let us kill him and cast him into some pit and we'll say some wild beast devoured him. We shall see what becomes of his dreams. Right? They, they plotted this evil against him. And in their eyes, when they sold him off, they had won. Yeah, let's see what's going to happen now with those dreams he had. It looked like evil was winning there. They got rid of Joseph. They got rid of him. When Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of rape and he was thrown into prison, once again, it looked like evil had won. I mean, think about Potiphar's wife. She was one of those ladies who was used to getting her way. Okay, she was the wife of a very, a very, you know, high official. I'm sure she had a lot of power, a lot of authority. So when she approached Joseph to seduce him, and when he refused her advances, she was infuriated. Can you imagine? She was just infuriated. So she lied, and she had him cast into prison. And I could just picture when her husband comes home, and she, you know, crying and all her, her lies and stuff. So they, they, they tie Joseph up. They bind him, and they're leading him away out of Potiphar's house towards the prison. And I could almost just hear her laughing, just, you know, just like that snickering, just like, I got you kind of thing, just like that evil. She was celebrating his downfall. And again, it looks like evil is winning in this case. So again, what about us, right? How, what's that application with us? Well, you don't have to look too far around in our world, right? To, and it seems all around that evil's triumphing, that, you know, good is bad, bad is good, right? Everything is, is just backwards. And if God's sovereignty means he has complete power and authority, sometimes we wonder, then why is the world so ungodly? Why is the world so ungodly? But remember, we talked about that earlier, that in his sovereignty, he gives us free will. James Montgomery Boyce, in his book, The Sovereign God, he writes, The seeming contradiction between what we see on earth and the idea that God is sovereign is due to human rebellion, which even though it's against God's commands, um, he nevertheless allows because he gave us a free will. And God permits sin for his own reasons, knowing in advance that he will bring sin to judgment in the day of his wrath, and that in the meantime, it will not go beyond the bounds he's fixed for it. So God knows that one day, all that sin will be evil will be judged, and God has set bounds to it. There is that free will, but God has set bounds to it. So we look around at the world, there's a lot of evil, but we know that God is still in control. His judgment will come one day. And Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about it. He talks about how the wicked don't seem to realize that a lack of judgment at the moment isn't a sign of God's approval 
or the sign that God doesn't exist, but rather it's a sign of God's patience. It's a sign of God's love for those who are lost. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 and verses 4 through 9, he talks about how God's going to render to each one according to his deeds one day. And these are, this is what's going to happen. He said, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. So it looks to us right now as if evil is triumphing, but we know that one day God is going to render to each one according to their deeds. Revelation 21, 8. Eight says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we know right now we look around, it looks like evil is triumphing, but we know that God, we can rest assured that God is in control and his sovereignty is not violated or annulled by this because one day he's going to render to each one according to his deeds. So sovereignty looks messy. It can be painful. It looks like evil is going to win. And finally, the thing about sovereignty that we realize as we study Joseph's life is that God uses evil for good. It's kind of like the flip side of what I just said. He said, it looks like evil's winning. But now at the end, God uses the evil for good. And this is one of the most amazing parts about his sovereignty is that he's actually able to, to do that. And it's tied, to, it's tied to his omniscience. It's tied to the fact that God knows what man's going to do. So he's able to even use our disobedience and our evil to bring his purposes to pass. And this principle is seen all throughout Joseph's life. But there's two, two incidents I'm going to focus on. I want where the whole idea of using evil for good. And that's the day he was called out to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And of course, when he revealed himself to his brothers. So think about the day that he was called to reveal, to um, interpret Pharaoh's dream. I mean, he woke up in the prison cell, just like any other day, and then the Pharaoh had a dream. Pharaoh's looking for someone to interpret it. The cupbearer realizes, oh my goodness, there's this guy back in the prison who I forgot about. So they come, they get Joseph. Joseph, come here. What? Come here. Right? Get him. Get him all cleaned up. Get him shaving. Put some clean clothes on him. Before he knows it, he's standing in front of Pharaoh. Woke up in a prison cell, standing in front of Pharaoh right there. And one commentator put it like this. Clearly, God had orchestrated Joseph's past experiences and trials for that very moment. If his brothers had not sold him into slavery, he would not have been brought down to Egypt. If Potiphar had not purchased him from the slave market, he would not have gained the experience he needed to manage people and commodities within an Egyptian context. If he had not been falsely accused and sent to prison, he would not have interpreted the cupbearer's dream. And if that had not happened, he would not have been summoned by the Pharaoh on that divinely appointed day. His responsibilities in Potiphar's house and in the jailhouse prepared him for his new role in Pharaoh's house. The Lord had overseen all those events to bring him to that one moment when Joseph would be ready to organize a national food drive and save millions from starvation. Pharaoh recognized God's hand on Joseph and immediately knew that the former prisoner should run th these food gathering operations. And it's amazing. I think about it. He woke up in a prison cell and he went to bed in a palace. I mean, think about it. He woke up in a prison cell, didn't go back, right? He ended up in a palace. 13 years earlier, he was brought to Egypt just as some lowly slave. And now he was second in command in the nation. And from that position, he was going to save not only Egypt from being decimated by a famine, but people from surrounding countries, including his own family, right? So that's how God was able to use that evil for good. And also we said in the moment when he revealed himself to his brothers, 
Like we said, like an amazing scene. You have to you just read through it slowly someday and just put yourself there like the fly on the wall and, and imagine what that was like. So Joseph, at that moment, when he shooed everyone else out and he revealed himself to his brothers, he said, please come near to me. And so they came near and he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine's been in the land. There's still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler through the land. Three times, just in that, in that time he's talking with his brothers, he talks about how God was the one who sent it, him there. And no doubt... Um, Joseph now sees why all these things happen. And I figure it probably started to fall into place when he was the first time his brothers walked in. When like he was selling grain to people from different countries and this group of young, these, this group of guys come in and he realizes, oh my goodness, that's my brothers. And he, they had no idea who he was. I could just see the, see the wheels start turning and pieces like a puzzle starting to fall into place right there, right? Now, the story goes on from there. We know that his whole family, his father Jacob and his whole family came down. Now, Jacob was 130 years old when he went to Egypt. He lived 17 years. He died 147 years old. So during those 17 years, Joseph, his brothers, Jacob were all there. But as soon as Jacob, his father, dies, the brothers start getting worried. Is Joseph going to finally take revenge on us now that our father's dead? Is he going to take revenge? So they come before him. They bow before him. And in Genesis chapter 50 and verses 19... Through 21, Joseph says, don't be afraid for am I in the place of God? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. So Joseph's relationship with God through all of his adversity, it allowed him to understand what God's sovereignty really meant, that God has supreme power. He has supreme authority and everything works together, right? For his purposes. So again, what does all that mean for us? Um, I'm not saying it's easy to see how God brings the good out of evil, but that's what the scripture teaches us that he does. In fact, it's part of the Messiah's mission. In Isaiah 50, excuse me, Isaiah 61, verse 3, it says um, that he gives them beauty for ashes, right? The, jo- the oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, right? So God takes those things which um, we see as, as, as difficult, and he's able to turn them into something beautiful, David, who knew a little bit about having problems and stuff, he said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God is the one who's able to do that. Probably the best example of turning, you know, evil, or, excuse, yeah, evil into good is seeing the life of Christ. Because think about it. What can be more evil than crucifying the sinless, innocent son of God? What can be more evil than that? And yet what other event in human history has brought about such a glorious result? Talk about changing, taking something evil, something sinister, and turning it into something amazing. Think about after he died, how despondent his disciples were. The guys on the road to Emmaus who were talking with Jesus but not knowing it's Jesus, they were saying, um, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They had all their hope on Jesus, right? But then he, he was crucified. But... After the resurrection, we know everything changed because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that greatest example of turning something that was so evil and so dark and so painful into something that was just so, so glorious. In the resurrection, Satan was defeated. Hebrews chapter two talks about how, how Christ, by partaking of death, he destroyed him who had power, the power of death, which is the devil. 
Christ took the power of death away from Satan. And he also opened the door to all of us to one day be able to partake in his resurrection. What did Jesus say in, in John chapter 11 in verse 25? He said um, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So God is able to take something that is very evil, that's very tragic, and turn it into something good. He did it in Joseph's life. He did it in the life of Christ. And God is able, ladies, to do that in your life. He can do that in my life. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, what does it look like? Well, it's something, it could be something that doesn't make sense. It could be something that's painful. It could look like the evil is going to win. But we know that in the end, God's going to take all of those things and he's going to change it into something good and accomplish his purposes in our life. So just kind of to wrap it up, why is God's sovereignty important? And I know um, we've touched on this already. Why is it important? What, how should it affect us as believers? There's just a couple other points I want to make. One of them is the sovereignty of God gives us confidence and hope. The sovereignty of God gives us confidence and hope because it means he has total control of things past, things present, and the future. Nothing happens outside of his knowledge and control. All things are either caused by him or they're allowed by him for his purposes through his perfect will and through his perfect timing. And because he's sovereign, because God is sovereign, he can promise that all things will work out for the good. He can promise that. Romans 8, 28. We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according, according to his purpose. We have to remember that God uses everything. He doesn't waste anything. I was thinking, there's no busy work with God. You think about it as a, you know, as a teacher when you were in school, like, like busy work, the stuff that doesn't really matter. There's no busy work with God. Everything matters. Everything matters. Kay Arthur, in her book, When Bad Things Happen, says, because God is sovereign... Even when people intend to do evil against you, God will work it out for your good. He's the redeemer of the difficulties and tragedies of life. I love it. God is the redeemer of the difficulties and tragedies of our life. He takes those things and he's able to redeem them. Which, and he's able to change them into something positive. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rule, rules over all. His kingdom rules over everything, even our mistakes. His kingdom rules, rules over everything, even our mistakes. He's able to take these things. You know, there's some things um, that happen to us that we have no control over. But then there's other times that we're the ones who mess up, right? And I know I'm not the only one, but there are those times we mess up. And what is wonderful about God's sovereignty is that he's able to take even our mistakes and use them for something positive, use them for something good. Doesn't mean he caused them, doesn't mean he made us do them. It just means because he's sovereign, he can take that and do something with it. Do something good with it. So because God's in control, whatever comes in your life will never be more than you can handle. And that gives me hope. First Corinthians ten thirteen: no temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. But God's faithful who won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. And with that temptation, he'll make a way of escape. So because he's in control, nothing will come to me that I won't be able to handle. And like we said, his sovereignty gives us hope because in Romans eight thirty one, if God is for us, who can be against us? Doesn't matter, right? Because our supreme, omnipotent God, he's on our side. He is on our side. So it doesn't matter who's against us. A.W. Tozer, in conclusion, he wrote an editorial years ago, and he said, to the child of God, there's no such thing as an accident. He travels an appointed way. Accident may indeed appear to befall him and misfortune stalk his way, but these evils will be so in appearance only. 
and will seem evils only because we cannot read the secret script of God's hidden providence. So things befall us, and it looks like an accident. It could look something bad, but it's because we cannot read the script of God's hidden providence. I think that's just a beautiful way to describe his sovereignty. It's a hidden script. It's something that God reveals to us little by little, day by day as we walk with him. And it contains God's hidden providence. His providence is his protective care. And only God knows how all of those things are going to fit together. And if we could see his script, we would understand it all. But we know that we can't. And so in that case, we're left to trust him. We're left to trust the promises that he's given to us. So God is sovereign. He has complete, absolute control, ladies, over everything. And he's constantly using his sovereignty on our behalf. And why? Because he loves us. And it's so amazing. I mean, the more I think about it, I can appreciate Paul's words in Romans eleven thirty three. These are words that a lot of you know. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Truly, there is none like him. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, there is no one like you who is able to take all the affairs of our lives, Lord, and shape them in a way that it produces good. And we so thank you, God, for your sovereignty. It gives us such comfort and hope to know that you are in control. It gives us such a sense of peace, Lord, to know that you are able to take those things that happen to us, whether it's our fault or those things that we have no control over. You are able to take them, Lord, and produce something worthwhile in our lives. You desire, Father, to form us into the image of your Son. And so every step along the way, God, you take advantage of all these things to shape us and to mold us. Father, it's not always a pretty process. It can be very painful. Um, it can be frustrating because we don't know what's happening. Help each of us, Lord, to trust you more and more as we put our lives into your hands as our sovereign God. And in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.